How well do psychiatric medications work in generalized anxiety disorder? And what do we do when they don't work? Welcome to the Carlite Psychiatry Podcast, keeping psychiatry honest since 2003. I'm Chris Aiken, the Editor-in-Chief of the Carlite Psychiatry Report. And I'm Kelly Newsom, a psychiatric NP and a dedicated reader of every issue. I'm holding in my hand a paper from 2016 It's a meta-analysis of treatment-resistant anxiety disorders by Beth Patterson, and I hoped it would have had some answers for this problem that I see every day in practice. But the conclusion is that nothing works. Nothing. Anxiety is a paradox. Patients feel it physically, so they naturally expect that a physical treatment like a medication will help. But it's in the anxiety disorders that our medications have some of the smallest effect sizes. In this month's Carlat Report, we featured an article on a German medication called Selexin that has beaten the odds in a few large head-to-head trials on generalized anxiety disorder. Selexin worked much better than paroxetine, equally well as lorazepam, and consistently better than placebo. It's all exciting, but what good is a medication that's only available by prescription in Germany and a dozen or so other European countries? Well, we were able to find a source for this medicine And in the online edition, you can learn how to order it and use it. Silexin is a proprietary extract of lavender oil made by Schwab Pharmaceuticals in Germany. Schwab is a German company that has been making over-the-counter remedies since 1866. What they do is identify natural sources of medicinal products like ginkgo or in the case of Silexin, the lavender plant whose oils and aromas have been used for anxiety for centuries. They then cultivate specific strains of the plant to intensify the therapeutic ingredients and extract them in a proprietary or copyrighted way. You may also know of Schwab if you follow the Tardive Dyskinesia literature. They make Tabonin, a ginkgo extract with the generic name EGB761 that has evidence in tardive dyskinesia. Tabonin came out in 1965 and has mainly been used for dementia and age-related cognitive decline. It has neuroprotective effects and antioxidant effects that suggested it might treat tardive dyskinesia, so about 10 years ago it was tested out in a series of three randomized controlled trials totaling 300 patients. In those trials, it worked with a very small p-value, four zeros. By comparison, our FDA-approved medications were tested in about 400 patients each, so similar trial size, but these were one large trial in their case, and they arrived at a p-value that is 100 times bigger than Tabonin's. They only had two zeros. Well, I'm sorry, but you're reminding me of a joke. I was at a medical conference once, and this guy had a t-shirt on that read, My p-value is smaller than your p-value. Well, it's interesting that Tabonin has the smaller p-value here, since it's not the FDA-approved product. And Tabonin is often mentioned as an afterthought, if at all, in clinical papers on tardive dyskinesia. That's not true in neurology, by the way. The American Academy of Neurology included Tabonin in its list of four standard treatments for tardive dyskinesia. Why do you think that is? That psychiatry gives natural products a short shift? Before I answer that, can I put out a disclaimer? Like, I'm not specifically in favor of natural or CAM treatments. I just want to do what works. I just want to go with where the evidence leads us here. 
What I think is going on in the field of psychiatry is that we tend to be more careful than other fields of medicine. The public is very skeptical and suspicious of what we're doing, giving medications for the mind. And we do have a history of going too far in the wrong direction, like with frontal lobotomies. And in America, we are particularly skeptical of natural products because they've tended to grow like infestations in our capitalist economy. In fact, it's because of these snake and oil type remedies that the FDA rose to power as a regulatory agency, first in the 1930s to regulate safety, and then in the 1960s to regulate efficacy. But the FDA doesn't regulate natural products much at all. As long as they don't make libelous claims or cause major harms, they can do whatever they want. But in Europe, and in particular Germany, it's different. There, they respect natural products and regulate their safety and efficacy. Many are available by prescription only, and 70% of general practitioners in Germany prescribe herbal remedies. Herbal medicine is a required part of the medical curriculum in Germany, and in Germany, natural medicines like Selexin and Tabonin are under much tighter regulatory control. In Germany, herbal products have to prove their quality, safety, and effectiveness before entering the market. It's also this way in the UK, the United Arab Emirates, and the Kingdom of Bahrain. In America, any herbal product can enter the market, and they can only be taken off the market if the FDA proves that they're not safe. So, in America, when we think of natural products, we think of scandals, where poorly manufactured herbal concoctions that were barely effective to begin with caused big problems like tryptophan, which people sometimes take for anxiety and depression. Well, in 1989, the FDA recalled a tryptophan product from Japan that contained contaminants that were causing muscle breakdown, eosinophilia myalgia. Fast forward 30 years, and the FDA is doing the same thing with medications that it approved. Both ranitidine and metformin were recently recalled for contamination with a carcinogen, NDMA. That NMDA recall has been big medical news this year, and it's really shaken my trust in FDA-approved products. Much of the problem we're seeing these days has to do with the trend toward overseas manufacturing of drugs in the past 10 years. It's much harder for the FDA to regulate that. For example, the FDA inspects American factories through surprise visits, but when they go to expect overseas factories, they have to authorize the trip through the local governments so their visits are announced weeks in advance and the companies have time to clean up any problems. Okay, so bottom line. The German preparation worked with a large effect size in generalized anxiety disorder. Depending on the study, you report that effect range from medium 0.5 to large 0.9. Can you put those numbers in context? What do they mean? An effect size is how much better than placebo the medicine worked. They range from small, that's 0.2 to 0.5. That's what we see with SSRIs in depression, which are around 0.3 to 0.5, the small range. SSRIs also land around 0.3 for generalized anxiety disorder. In this small range of effect, you would barely notice the effect with your own eyes. That's surprising. Next is medium effect size. That's 0.5 to 0.8.
This is where the casual observer can generally see a difference. Benzos for generalized anxiety disorder fall here at 0.5. And when all psychiatric treatments are piled together, including medications and psychotherapy, the average effect size is 0.5, which is about the same as the average effect size for all medicines and medical treatments as a whole. So our field is not too far out in our efficacy. So what's a large effect size? Not many treatments in psychiatry reach that level. There's stimulants for ADHD, ketamine for depression. Here we're talking about an effect size of 0.8 and above. And for those two treatments, stimulants and ketamine, nearly all of the studies average out in that large range. Now, depending on the study, we might also include benzos for acute panic attacks, or antipsychotics for acute psychosis, and now maybe Silexin for generalized anxiety disorder, because it was in the meta-analysis that it came out at 0.9. Let's finish up with all the treatments for generalized anxiety. This all comes from meta-analysis, so you can't really compare these effect sizes head-to-head. For example, if one study enrolled patients with severe illness, or one study had a particularly weak placebo because they weren't giving much supportive care to their subjects, then you may see some different effect sizes for the same drug. But those caveats aside, here's where the numbers fall. We'll start with the lowest effect, 40-oxetine, Trintelix. Although it's promoted by Stephen Stahl and others as a good antidepressant for anxiety, its effect size in generalized anxiety didn't even cross into the small range. It's 0.12, negligible. Boosperone, Boospar, 0.17, negligible. Belazidone, Vibrid, 0.26, small. SSRIs, 0.33. SNRIs, 0.36. Hydroxyzine, Vistaril, 0.45. Benzo, 0.4 to 0.5. Psychotherapy, 0.5. Selexin, 0.86. Quetiapine, 1.6. We pulled those numbers from half a dozen meta-analyses, several of which were done at Duke University. For the most part, all of them agreed on the same numbers, but where there was a discrepancy, we went with the more recent paper, for example, pregabalin Lyrica came in at 0.5 in 2007, but 0.38 in 2017. I noticed the SNRIs, like venlafaxine and duloxetine, were more effective than the SSRIs. Yes, just barely, with 0.33 for the SSRIs and 0.36 for the SNRIs. But I will agree, every meta-analysis we looked at found a slightly bigger effect with the SNRIs. And we also see that trend in depression. The SNRIs are just slightly more effective in the large analyses. But this is really not enough to make a meaningful difference in practice. So with that level of difference, you're better off choosing the medication based on maybe the side effect profile than the 1 in 20 patients that you're going to help with that slightly bigger effect size. And Vistaril, hydroxyzine, worked better than I'd expect. That surprised me too. Hydroxyzine is an antihistamine that's been out since the 1950s. It's actually FDA approved for, quote, 
relief of anxiety and tension associated with psychoneurosis, which I guess is an antiquated term for generalized anxiety disorder. Hydroxyzine is often viewed as ineffective by clinicians who seem to reserve it for patients with addictive tendencies who request as-needed meds. But maybe we need to reconsider that. The main limitation in that effect size is that it was only based on short-term studies, so we don't know if those results hold up. But at least hydroxyzine is not addictive or rewarding. The main reasons to avoid hydroxyzine are sedation, dry mouth, QTC prolongation, and anticholinergic effects. And while those anticholinergic effects might raise concerns about memory problems, it was tested against lorazepam and was much more favorable in terms of cognition and balance than the benzo was. But still, with anticholinergic effects and QTC, you might want to avoid hydroxyzine in the elderly. But what really stands out to me here is that quetiapine, Seroquel, is the most effective. Why is it not FDA approved in generalized anxiety then? The company tried to get FDA approval in 2009, but the FDA rejected it. Not because quetiapine wasn't effective, it clearly is. Quetiapine's effect there is based on three studies with 1,533 patients. And the margin of error around that 1.6 effect size is pretty tight. 1.6 is the average right in the middle, and we know that the real effect is somewhere between 1.0 and 2.2. So either way, this is a large effect size for quetiapine. Okay, so why didn't they approve it? Safety. The FDA decided that generalized anxiety disorder is not severe enough to warrant risking it with a medication that can cause diabetes and tardive dyskinesia, among other things. And this gets back to the origins of generalized anxiety disorder in 1980. If you're interested in that, scroll back to our November 2019 series on anxiety. Here's a brief summary. Generalized anxiety disorder was originally conceived of in 1980 as a mild condition where psychotherapy was appropriate and medications were questionable. Well, that in itself reflects a different time when we viewed psychotherapy as a treatment for mild conditions and medications for more severe ones. That's something that doesn't entirely hold up to the evidence. But anyway, when the SSRIs came out in 1987, they had greater tolerability which allowed them to gain approval and widespread popularity for generalized anxiety disorder. So when would you use quetiapine for anxiety? Only if the generalized anxiety was severe and disabling. Generalized anxiety occurs on a spectrum from everyday worry to disabling misery. And the FDA's concern is well justified because the pharmaceutical industry likes to push the envelope of that spectrum. If quetiapine had been approved, they would have been pitching it for everyday anxiety to general practitioners everywhere. You might also consider quetiapine, by the way, for patients that have a lot of anxiety and another disorder where quetiapine is indicated, like bipolar disorder. It's interesting that the FDA views depression as severe enough to warrant approval with quetiapine, but not anxiety. That might reflect cultural bias more than science. When the World Health Organization surveyed psychiatric disability in 2018, they found, not surprising, that 15% of people with psychiatric disorders were disabled by them. 
But what is surprising is the odds of having a disability were about the same for depression, 3.5 odds, as for generalized anxiety, 3.1. A lot of PR has gone into convincing people that depression is a serious illness. Anxiety, not as much. Okay, but this podcast is on treatment-resistant anxiety disorder. And that was my frustration. I found nothing that worked. Does Selexin work in treatment-resistant cases? Not that we know of. It has a large effect, true, but that's in people just starting treatment. Treatment-resistant anxiety is defined much like treatment-resistant depression. Failure to have a meaningful response to one to two therapies, usually antidepressants. And here's where things get interesting, although not very inspiring. The paper you're holding in your hands, the meta-analysis, looked at whether adding something to an SSRI could work when anxiety doesn't respond to an SSRI. And like you said, they concluded that nothing worked for generalized anxiety and other anxiety disorders. This paper, by the way, looked at generalized anxiety disorder, social anxiety disorder, and panic disorder. And most of those studies involved which medication? Let me see. Quetiapine, quetiapine, olanzapine, quetiapine. In fact, of the dozen studies they looked at, over half of them involved atypical antipsychotics, and they didn't work. And most of them are quetiapine. That is surprising, given its large effect size. We can't always explain these things, other than treatment-resistant anxiety disorders must be very hard to treat. Sometimes meta-analyses are so conservative in their rigor, though, that they miss important signals. Like in this paper, they disqualified studies if the patients were taking too many other psychotropics or didn't publish exactly the kind of metric they were looking for to analyze. Now, I get it that those reasons for exclusion can be weaknesses, but I'd still like to see the results. So meta-analyses are very good at aggregating data and getting us good summary numbers, but they're not always good at presenting all the data we need to know as clinicians. So we pulled up the individual papers they reviewed to see if any of them showed efficacy on their own terms. And one of them did. It was a study of pindolol augmentation in panic disorder. But before you get into that result, I'm skeptical. Why did they exclude it from the meta-analyses? They excluded this Pindalol study, and it wasn't for good reasons, in my opinion. First, they nixed it because the authors didn't list a primary outcome they were aiming for. The authors used six rating scales, and the problem there is that by chance they could have gotten a positive result on just one of them and claimed success. But the study was actually positive on all but one of those six rating scales. It was only negative on the Hamilton depression scale. The other reason they excluded it was that the authors didn't specify whether the dropouts were in the treatment or the placebo arm. And yes, a study could seriously misrepresent the results if the medication looked really positive in the end, but almost all of the dropouts were taking the medication. But in this study, they only had one patient drop out, and he dropped out because he moved abroad, so this technically really doesn't apply and wasn't a good reason to exclude it. 
but back to Pendolol. Did it work? Yes. Pendolol, 2.5 milligrams three times a day, successfully augmented fluoxetine in panic disorder that had not responded to two antidepressant trials and to a fluoxetine trial, so three trials that failed. And Pendolol worked on five out of six of the outcome measures. The study was small, only 25 patients. Keep in mind, this is just one study, and it's in panic disorder, which may be very different in its treatment response from generalized anxiety. But that's all we got. Nothing else that was tested in a placebo-controlled way in treatment-resistant anxiety worked. Not pregabalin Lyrica, not quetiapine or other atypicals like olanzapine, zeprazidone, risperidone, not even clonazepam. Wait a minute, you're telling me that adding a benzo doesn't do anything in anxiety disorders? That's what this study says, actually two of them. The largest one was in social anxiety. They took patients who did not respond to sertraline and tested whether augmenting with placebo, clonopin, or switching to venlafaxine would help. This was a large study, some 300 or so patients. And your instincts are right here, Kelly. The clonopin actually did help, but the benefit was so small that it wasn't statistically significant, even in the large study. So that's what we call a trend towards significance, but nothing big there. Surprising. Well, that's not what I see in practice. I mean, patients generally report a big difference when we add in a benzo. Yes, but this paper is just reporting on an anxiety rating scale. Benzos may be doing all sorts of things, including their known rewarding effects, that aren't measured on an anxiety rating scale. But then it's questionable whether their rewarding effect is a beneficial one, although it certainly improves adherence. On the other hand, here's another study they left out. Ezoplaclone, Lunesta, 3 milligrams at night, improved anxiety symptoms, not just sleep, in a large controlled trial of generalized anxiety disorder where it was added to escitalopram Lexapro. These patients, by the way, all had insomnia, but then again, so do most patients with generalized anxiety disorder. That study was in 2008. It was a large one, and it's important because it suggests that anxiety improves when sleep gets better, which is certainly true in my own life. Why wasn't that one in the meta-analysis? because technically they didn't have treatment-resistant anxiety. On the other hand, they were taking escitalopram Lexapro 10 milligrams a day for three months, and most had not fully recovered on it. So let's get to the bottom line. Pendolol is FDA-approved in hypertension, but it has CNS effects. It's a serotonin 1A1B antagonist. Would you use it in treatment-resistant anxiety? Yes, I would, for panic disorder but I wouldn't rush into it. I might consider an MAOI first. Those have evidence in panic disorder, and by the way, in social anxiety disorder, the MAOIs have a much larger effect size than the SSRIs. For treatment-resistant generalized anxiety disorder, which is what we're talking about here, we have no evidence to guide us, and I would certainly explore psychotherapy or this new one, Silexin. But I have to acknowledge that Silexin, despite its large effect size, has never been studied in treatment-resistant anxiety. 
But other than pindolol, nothing else has worked. And when you scan through the treatments in this paper, antipsychotics, anticonvulsants, benzos, pindolol is probably the safest of the bunch. The problem is that pindolol's study is small and it's not been replicated, but it's all we got. And while it was just in panic disorder, pindolol also has small trials in treatment-resistant depression as an augmenter to antidepressants. And now for the word of the day, alienist. An alienist is a 19th century term for a psychiatrist. The Latin origin means outsider or foreigner, and the word came into the English language during the 19th century. The Alienist was also the title of a popular novel about a 19th century psychiatrist in New York City. It's a curious term, and to our modern ears, it would seem that people back then stigmatized mental illness, viewing it as though they were aliens from outer space. Now, just as we do, I'm sure they probably did stigmatize mental illness, but that's not what this term is about. The word derives from the fact that they viewed people with mental illness as alienated from themselves, from their true selves, as well as from society. Got questions or ideas? We'd love to hear from you. Ask the editor at thecarlatreport.com. And your subscription helps us stay free of industry influence so we can keep bringing you unbiased information you can trust.